This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Just a note before starting, Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. Hello and welcome to today's mini-sode. I'm Anna Thomas and today I just have a few short stories for you. So in a mini-sode, I tell a number of shorter stories which really aren't long enough to put into a regular episode. So for the first story today, I'd like to describe to you what a typical day is in my job as a teacher. So each day when I go to school, I will open my classroom door in the morning and greet all of my students. And in those initial few minutes, as the students are entering the room, Sometimes there are parents who need to talk to me briefly about something, and sometimes kids have notes from their parents to give me, although more often these days, parents will normally contact me via email. But you still do get the occasional note from a parent. That note could be about a number of different things, and as I read the notes, I certainly do not expect to read what one teacher read when one of her students handed her a note from her mother. It was just earlier this year in February at a school in Las Vegas that a teacher was given a note from a girl in her class who was seven years old. The teacher just could not comprehend what she had read. The girl's mother wrote that she needed help, that she was being held against her will and to call the police. She gave the address where she was being held and also said that she didn't know where her son was who was four years old. The teacher promptly alerted the school administration, who contacted the police. And within an hour, the police went to the address and put the house under surveillance. Not long after, a man and a woman came out of the house and left in a car. The police followed the vehicle and then conducted a traffic stop. The woman was indeed the girl's mother, and they questioned her about the note but out of earshot of the man she was with. She told them that he was her boyfriend and had been physically abusing her and that she had been kept at the house for weeks against her will, not being allowed to leave the house. But it was what she said next that was even more alarming. She hadn't seen her four-year-old son for a number of weeks and she feared that he was dead. The police then obtained a search warrant and entered the house and they found the woman's four-year-old son, whose name was Mason. He had been located lifeless inside a freezer. You can imagine the woman's devastation when Mason was found, but sadly, it was what she had suspected. She told police the date of the last time that she had seen Mason, and it turned out to be about ten weeks before they were rescued. So he had been in that freezer all that time and the story she told of their ordeal was just harrowing. She had entered into a relationship with the man about a year earlier after her own husband had died of pneumonia. He had actually been a friend of her husband's so they already knew each other. She found herself struggling with bills and trying to raise her two children. And the relationship started from there. She then moved in with him with her two children. 
Everything was fine to begin with, but the man then got increasingly controlling, and over time he became more and more emotionally and physically abusive towards her and the children. Her family never liked him from the start, as her grandmother said. There were red flags right away in his first encounter with our family, and I think he knew that. He chose to stay away. He worked on isolating her from our family because he expressed some jealousy and insecurities. So he became more and more controlling over the woman's movements and interactions with her family, even using her phone to send her family messages that she didn't want any more to do with them, which of course was not true. But things only got worse. Whenever they left the house in the car, she was handcuffed and he never allowed her to be alone with the children. He forced her to clean the house and cook the meals and all other times she was tied up inside her bedroom, sometimes with duct tape. He even watched her when she went to the bathroom and he installed motion sensors inside the house as well as video surveillance. All the windows in the house were covered up and he even sent her work a text saying that she had quit her job. She was subjected to physical, emotional and sexual abuse and was constantly thinking about how she could get a note to someone, maybe the mailman or a pizza delivery man. But it was what happened to little Mason which is just gut-wrenching. She noticed that he had bruising, but the man said that the dog had knocked him over or that he fell, just describing Mason as being clumsy. At one point during their captivity, Mason became sick. She wanted to get medical treatment for him, but the man refused. He then locked Mason in his bedroom and she never saw Mason again. When she asked about him, he said Mason had vomited on himself and did not respond to CPR. She wanted to see him, but he said it was too late and he wouldn't show her his body because his freedom would be taken away. Then he wouldn't allow her to go into the garage, and this made sense afterwards as the freezer had been in the garage. But it was one trip in the car that she had found a pen and sticky notes inside the car. With handcuffs on, she somehow managed to grab them without him noticing and hid them in her clothing. Back at the house, she hid the notes inside her bed mattress and then started writing notes for help hoping to get an opportunity to somehow get the notes to someone outside the home. One of the notes said, Help, I'm being held captive. Call my mum, he has a gun. Be careful. Then one night, he allowed her daughter to sleep with her, which he hadn't done before, and she saw this as her chance. So she took the notes from the mattress and then put them in her daughter's sock. This brave little girl then went to school and gave the notes to her teacher and their ordeal was finally over. An investigation of the man showed that he had had a history of previous arrests for domestic battery and disorderly conduct. Now this was all uncovered only in February this year, so the matter is still proceeding through the courts. But here is the statement that the woman's lawyer made. He methodically and systematically just started exercising more and more control over her. 
The mother was physically, sexually and emotionally abused. The children were also physically and emotionally abused and separated from their mother most of the time. There was never a time when her daughter was with her that she was not locked in a room, bound or handcuffed. There was never an opportunity to take her daughter and run. She's heroic. For her to be in that situation and try to pay attention to the details and come up with a plan, this was done over weeks. And just looking for a flaw. And when she identified a flaw, she exploited it with the small acts of rebellion to take her power back, whatever little power she could take. So after Mason was discovered, the family and friends created a GoFundMe account to help with the funeral arrangements, and it said, Mason was so bright and loved to learn. At the age of three, he had known all his letters and numbers. He enjoyed swimming at his grandma's house, ready to jump into the pool any chance he had. We will forever remember this sweet and precious little boy and cherish all these wonderful memories we have of him. Our family knows that Mason is in heaven with his daddy, dancing and playing forever. So we know that the mother and her daughter had been held captive for at least 10 weeks, but I couldn't find out how long they had been in the house before she noticed that her boy was missing. So who knows how long they had been there. So we know that for at least 10 weeks, that little seven-year-old girl went to school with her teacher and school totally unaware of what was happening at her home. I'm not sure if she continued to go to school as normal, that he figured by doing this that her absence from school would just create suspicion and it's required by law that a child's prolonged absence is checked. So I'm thinking, why didn't she say something before this? You'd think that her behaviour would have changed at school, but it seems that the teacher didn't notice anything. As this had all happened in December and January, it would have been cold and therefore any physical signs of abuse would have been covered up by her clothing. So that's the only reason that I can think of to explain why her teacher didn't see anything or didn't notice anything. Perhaps the man even threatened her not to say anything at school or he would hurt her or her brother. So as this story only came to light a few months ago, the information is from the mother and as we know, there are usually two sides to every story. She has not been named as a suspect in the boy's death, but the question has to be asked whether she had any involvement in what happened and will the man provide a different story to hers? She said her son had been sick, so was he actually sick or did he have some type of injury which was sustained from the abuse by the man? Perhaps he had been hurt in some way, but the mother interpreted his condition as some type of an illness. I guess all these questions will be answered once the case has gone through the courts. I just can't get over this. How does a human being do this to another human being, especially to a child? So for this next story, we go back just a few years ago in 2020, when a school group from the UK headed out on a mountain hike. There were 13 boys who went on the hike, and they were from an Orthodox Jewish high school. The boys were in year 10, so aged 14 or 15. The mountain they went to climb was called Mount Helvellyn, 
and it was almost 1,000 metres high, which is about 3,000 feet, making it the third highest peak in England. The trip was supervised by two rabbis, one teacher, and also a teaching assistant. The conditions on that day were quite poor, and they proceeded on the trek through ice and snow, but they still managed to reach the summit. Then the group made their descent back down the mountain, but because of all the snow, they veered off the path and got lost, and found themselves in a very steep section with vertical rock faces. And it was here that one of the boys slipped and fell, but only received minor cuts. By this time, they realised they were in a precarious situation, and one of the boys became distressed and ran off trying to find his own way back down the mountain. Luckily, he was found by a member of the public who managed to guide him down to safety. So the authorities were then alerted to the lost group, and a mountain rescue team headed up the slope and eventually found them after dark. And thankfully, they were all okay, and they were guided back down to safety. But although all ended well, there were serious questions asked about what had gone wrong and an investigation was launched into the incident by the Health and Safety Executive in the UK, or the HSE, which is a government agency responsible for the regulation and enforcement of workplace health, safety and welfare. So here is what was established. The school had carried out a risk assessment before proceeding on the hike, which had been a requirement. However, it was found that the assessment was not properly implemented. So here is what went wrong. Firstly, the two rabbis did not have formal qualifications in outdoor activities. They followed the correct procedure in checking the weather conditions the day before, but they ignored a warning that had been issued. That warning said, winter climbing clothing and equipment is essential for those going above the snow line on all the routes, including the easier one. And it has to be noted here that the school group actually went on the easiest route. It also said, as a result, a slip without means to stop yourself could have serious consequences. The snow obscuring landmarks combined with a low cloud requires excellent navigational skills. However, despite this warning, the hike went ahead and it was found that the boys had only been wearing school shoes or trainers and school trousers or tracksuit bottoms. They did have a map, but rather than carrying torches or a compass, they relied on the teacher's mobile phones for light and used a compass app. They had no climbing equipment, such as ropes or ice axes, and no tents or foil blankets. Somewhere on the way up, they came across two other hikers who warned them that they shouldn't go any further, but this was ignored and they continued. It was then 4pm when they finally reached the summit, which meant they were rapidly running out of daylight. By 5.30pm, the rescue team had been alerted, with a helicopter and dogs being sent to find them, and they were found about an hour later. How lucky was that? By this time, the temperature was below zero. It was determined that the school had decided to take the easiest route up the mountain, thinking it would be more like a walk than a mountain hike, and that therefore they didn't need any safety equipment. 
the boys were told to wear appropriate footwear and clothing, but this had not been communicated with the parents. The HSE took the school to court over the matter, and here is a statement from an inspector. On this occasion, none of the party came to serious harm. However, the school were aware of the weather conditions, but decided to proceed without the appropriate planning equipment or suitably trained leaders. Those taking part in the trek that day were placed in serious danger and there was a clear failing by the school to adopt sensible precautions to ensure their safety. Excursions into mountains, particularly in the winter, need to be led by people with the appropriate skills, knowledge and experience. If a school does not have access to the necessary expertise in-house, then licensed adventure activities providers are available to manage the technical aspects of this type of trekking activity. This incident was entirely avoidable. HSE recognises the benefits of outdoor learning activities, including those involving hiking or trekking in mountain environments. However, schools need to take sensible and proportionate measures to control the risks involved. This trip should not have gone ahead without such measures in place. And here is what the judge said. There was a group of children inappropriately dressed, without safety equipment, trekking above the snow line, being led by staff without proper training, with limited daylight due to a late start, against a backdrop of a warning of serious consequences from a weather report. There can be no question that there was a risk of death caused by slipping, falling from height, or hypothermia. There was a serious failing by the school to properly assess the risk for its pupils and to ensure their safety. And here is a statement from the school. The health and safety of our pupils and staff is always of the utmost importance. We have clear and robust safety measures in place, but on this occasion we appreciate that mistakes were made. As such, we fully accept the court's judgment. We have conducted a thorough investigation into what happened two years ago and have made a number of improvements to our health and safety policy and practice. This includes a thorough review of our risk assessment policies and procedures. The school admitted a number of health and safety breaches of the Health and Safety at Work Act of 1974. They were prosecuted and fined £30,000, also ordered to pay costs of £4,500 for the rescue operation and a victim surcharge of £180. Now, I have covered other stories about school groups going on hikes and deaths occurring due to inadequate planning, but these occurred decades ago when school policies and procedures around safety did not really exist. But in this case, this school had no excuse. It was only a few years ago. How on earth this was allowed to happen is beyond me. Any excursion that we plan is checked by the school administration. So it seems in this case, the administration of this school did not do its due diligence. So a very, very fortunate outcome for the boys on this trip. Now, this story was suggested to me by one of my podcast listeners and one of the members of our Facebook group. So thank you very much to Kate Annells for this story. 
Now, this episode was only going to have two stories, but as I was researching the stories, I came across an update about a story that I had covered way back in episode 16. It was called Buried Alive. So here is a summary of the story, and then I will update you on what's happened. It was back in 1976, so that's almost 50 years ago, that a school bus was hijacked by three masked men. There were 26 children and the bus driver on the bus. They were taken away in other vehicles to a quarry about 100 miles away. In the quarry, they had dug a huge hole in the ground and then a truck trailer was lowered into the hole. The students and the bus driver were then imprisoned in the truck underground and the truck was then covered over with earth so that it was totally hidden. They gave them cereal and peanut butter and a box as a toilet. The reason for the kidnapping was for ransom. They wanted $50 million and thought kidnapping children would guarantee them the money. So you can imagine that the conditions underground in the truck soon got hot and stifling, particularly as they had to urinate and defecate down there. So at some point they got desperate and after not hearing any noise outside, they decided to try to risk getting out. So they piled up mattresses and were able to reach the trap door in the truck's roof where they had come down into the truck. But of course, it was covered over in dirt, which they had to try to dig through. And finally, one of the boys was able to squeeze out and found a night watchman at the quarry and the group were finally freed and they all survived. They had been underground for 16 hours. And how is this for karma? The kidnappers had tried a number of times to call the police to arrange the ransom, but they couldn't get through because so many of the children's parents were on the phone to the police. One of the men was to say later that the idea was inspired by a dirty Harry movie about a school bus that was hijacked and it was Clint Eastwood who was the hero who rescued the children. So the three men had been on the run, but they were eventually found. A draft of the ransom note had been found at one of their homes, and this man's family had actually owned the quarry. So this is how they knew to pursue the man. All three were found guilty and given seven years to life in prison. One of the men imprisoned for the crime recently was granted parole. He is now 70 years old and he was 24 at the time. And it had been the 17th time that he had applied for parole. Now, the decision is still up for review, so he could still be denied. The other two men involved were brothers and both had already been granted parole some years earlier. So the question I have is, why was he denied 16 times before? And why was he the last of the men to be paroled? Was it his conduct in prison? Did they feel that he didn't express genuine remorse? But really, for you to fully appreciate what happened to these children, you really have to see photos of the truck buried in the ground. It was a really, really big truck and the hole was huge. So just Google Chowchilla bus kidnapping and you'll be able to see the photos. And also, here is one more update on a previous story, which I totally came upon by accident while I was on Twitter. It was episode 153, Bad Blood, 
about the teenage boy Ryan White who died from AIDS after a blood transfusion. If you recall the story, Ryan became well-known for his advocacy to spread AIDS awareness and built friendships with a number of celebrities, such as Michael Jackson and Elton John, who was actually with him in hospital when he died. Well, I just happened to be on Twitter when I saw that Elton John was trending. And often when you see a celebrity trending, it's because they've been involved in some sort of a controversy, or maybe that they've passed away. So I had a look, but luckily Elton John hadn't passed away. But what he had to say was actually about Ryan White. He had been giving a concert in Indianapolis, and Ryan himself had been from Indiana. And Ryan's mother had been in the audience. He said coming to know Ryan and his family was what became the catalyst that made him change his life direction. He said, I knew that my lifestyle was crazy and out of order. And six months later, I got sober and clean and have been ever since. I cannot thank them enough because without them, I'd probably be dead. He then spoke directly to Ryan's mother and said, I love you so much. Thank you all for all you've done for me. This song is for you. And then he began playing, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. That is just so interesting because I remember years and years ago when Elton John finally came out and made it public about his whole life and and then how he changed his life around and he stopped drinking and he stopped the drugs and all of that. But I had no idea that it was Ryan White that had made all of that happen. Isn't that just so interesting and so amazing that I only found this out through my podcast? So that's the end of today's mini-sode. I hope you enjoyed those stories. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Runaway Bride. Annie went missing days before her wedding. What happened to her? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote about the first story which showed the many hats that teachers wear. A counsellor, a secretary, a nurse, a social worker and a teacher walked into a bar and then she ordered a drink. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.